Hello and welcome to Tipsy Tolstoy, Russian literature for the inebriated. I'm Matt Garasimovich, a PhD student in Russian lit. This week, I bought a 100-foot-long Ethernet cable so I could better play video games. <laughs> That's something we should all aspire to. Mm-hmm. I am Cameron Lalana, and this week I have moved my desk. So now instead of just like having my bed and then I get up and go to my desk, I've got like a little office space in the corner of my room, which I have to leave to get to the rest of it. So um, it's actually just more inconvenient. But uh, <laughs> whenever someone comes into my room now, I, I look at them over my desk and my computer monitors and they kind of have to stand there like they're, com- like they're some kind of a uh, petitioner coming to a county, you know, imperial Russian That's fun. Uh, That's clerk. fun. Add a little Alexei Karenin in, in your everyday life, too. It'll help. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, whenever my roommates come and ask me for something now, I ask them to submit it in triplicate. So mm-hmm. they're probably going to kill me in a revolution. But I think it's worth it to be a little bit more like our main man, Alexei Karenin. <laughs> well, all life is made out of light and shadow, if you ask me. And this is a podcast where me and my good pal Cameron gets one wind from our weeks with some Russian literature and a drink or two. This week, we're going to be discussing the short story Matryona's House by Alexander Solzhenitsyn. And just a quick note, this was requested by some of our patrons kind of a while ago. Uh, this is one of our more <laughs> requested authors, actually. So happy to be able to do this one. Uh, and if you're interested in helping out the show, uh, take a look at our Patreon at patreon.com slash tolstoy. We have a lot of good Patreon-only content and rewards, and of course, exclusive access to your favorite podcast hosts. Uh, maybe request something that you're interested in. It would be it would be fun. We like covering that kind of stuff. But if you're not interested in Patreon, but would prefer to support us in another way, you can leave us a nice review on Apple Podcasts or sign up for our email list on our website. Yes, thank you for the updates. But before we get into the reading today, Matt, what are you drinking now? Come here, come here, come close to the to the. Okay, come close I'm getting to me. In. Come close to me. I'm getting really close, really to, my, close to my my monitor. Okay, so. okay. Now the listeners the listeners may not know this because they're seeing this a week apart but yeah we're recording this like five minutes after our last episode so <laughs> unfortunately i can only i only have money to buy one four pack of expensive ass beer at my local grocery store so i'm still drinking tome by half acre brewing in chicago it's still local so no one in discord can get mad at me yeah 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 mm-hmm. i can smell it on your breath yeah yeah yeah, yeah. well okay yeah. you can back up now <laughs> okay all right I'll, I'll move back a little bit <laughs> What are you drinking this double episode? Luckily for me, my my local corner store actually sells individual individual beers. That's really nice. Yeah. It's helped a lot out for my finances for this show. Mm-hmm. So today, uh, yeah, now that you've given away the ghost that we're doing this recording <laughs> immediately afterwards, um, <laughs> I am drinking uh, Gold Vibe Hard Kombucha, Ooh. handcrafted in Northern California. It, uh, it is labeled as gluten-free, organic, probiotic, unfiltered, unpasteurized, vegan, raw, and live cultures. So, Cameron, you can just say you live in California. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, this is, this is the flavor Bucha Colada, which I hate. Yep. But yep. It, it is what I, it, it's a tall boy of, of alcoholic kombucha. Sounds pretty good, though. I'm not going to lie. I would drink that. Yeah. It's the, I don't, I don't know if you're much of a, an alcoholic kombucha person, but, um, I've had a fair amount of alcoholic kombucha in my day because, uh, I'm the type of California that other Californians roll their eyes at. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. But hey, yeah, we're here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the type of Californian that when, when we were talking about our rents and you told me yours, I was like, that's fantastic. I can't believe it. I should move to Chicago. That's so low. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I think my rent is high for Chicago. So, hey. <laughs> 
<laughs> Alas. I don't even live in a, an important city. I'm just living, I'm literally living five minutes outside of like some farms and I'm <laughs> paying so much. Okay, well, that's fine. Well, this week, Matriona's house. Speaking of living out in the middle of nowhere, <laughs> this is going to be pretty similar to the way we've been structuring our Anna Karenina episodes in that we're not going to do too much in the way of background because a lot more of this piece is to be found really in the analysis of the text itself and the background's not really going to inform you that much more because there are a lot of ways that people read this text many ways uh, every single paper i looked up had a different interpretation so <laughs> yeah your, your stroll down jstor wasn't too fruitful i, I heard <laughs> so i heard no 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 usually jstor is pretty helpful but for this one it was just like well, now I know a lot about the different uses of dom versus dvor versus izba, all terms for household or homestead versus in Russian, and how that might affect the way we read this 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 novel or this short story. But that being said, let's talk about Matriona's home. So Matriona's home begins with our unnamed narrator, and he is in the summer of 1953, which for those of you who might not exactly be getting it, this is after and not too long after Stalin's death has now been, is now looking for a place to, to live. And he's just trying to find somewhere out of the way, as far out of the city as he can go. He wants a rural place where he can teach. After a couple of villages, which he's not super into, because, a uh, quote, uh, in one town he gets assigned to, nobody baked bread, so there was nothing edible for sale. <laughs> you had to go to a nearby village to go get your food. So he was like, maybe not. And uh, surprisingly, the personnel selection is actually pretty minimal. I guess they probably get why you wouldn't want to live there. And so they transfer him to another place called, and I don't know if you know how to say this properly, Matt, uh, Torfa Product. What is it? Torf, tor, uh, well, okay, it's Torfo Product, just in English, but I'm trying to figure out like the Russian pronunciation because- I thought it was Pete Produce. What? The town name? Yeah. Oh, wait, that must be the Russian word for Pete in- Oh, that makes sense. Torf, yeah. Okay. They're trying to like, to transliterate it like in a way that makes sense. God, that makes... I was going to read the line, Torfa Produkt? Turgenev never knew that you can put words like that together in Russian. <laughs> that makes so much more sense now that you've said that. Yeah, they're trying to show, like, the way that they just would, like, mash <laughs> words together to make town names. <laughs> Shout out to Simruk. <laughs> Literally. I mean, that kind of is what's going on here, actually. Think about it. Yeah. Uh, okay. I'm just going to sip right into my microphone there for you. Are you, are you ASMR'd yet? Oh, I, I didn't actually hear it. Oh, there we go. Oh, is that a good ASMR? So Should good. We pivot to that. So good. <laughs> I think we. There's probably more money in that than Russian literature. So honestly, yeah. When I was like in high college, we jokingly recorded a uh, bank robbery ASMR, and then I realized that that's a real right. thing that people have actually done. Are you really? So yeah. I think they talk softly. Okay. Well, we'll do this after. <laughs> so he arrives in Torfa Produkt or uh, Pete's Pete Product <laughs> Pete <Produce>. Town <laughs> Pete Produce. Thank you. Everywhere in the train station, it's written, no tickets. And he writes, it was only later that I fully appreciated the meaning of these addenda. Getting to Torfa Produkt was easy, but not getting away. <laughs> <laughs> this, could, this could also very easily be starting like a horror story. It sounds like a Call of Cthulhu campaign. Actually, if we do this, <laughs> the Soviet Call of Cthulhu campaign for oh. our Patreon at patreon.com slash tolstoy, we should absolutely start it here. 300%. Yeah, that's that's a great idea. Yes, sir. I'm going to censor all of that so no one knows the secret. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that I'm not going to. So here's this former prisoner, and he notes that here, once trackless forests had stood, but now, after the revolution, they've all been cut down for various uses. So he goes into town and finds 
a, a merchant there, the only one who's actually selling anything, actually the only person there at all, <laughs> uh, from whom he buys some milk, and he entices her to help him find a place to live. So she takes her around town. He really doesn't like anything, even though the school he's now working at is offering like a whole bunch of peat to whoever takes him, because uh, peat is a good thing to... <laughs> So they don't call it peat produce for nothing, am I right, ladies? <laughs> uh, it's a good thing to burn in your stove. And so he doesn't really like anything until he comes across the dome of Matriona. And he is like, yeah, this is the place. And Matriona is not super into him living there. She's like, you, you know, neither of us can cook. You know, we really, you don't really want me. You should check out everyone else again. So he does. And he comes back and says, hey, Matriona, I really want to live here. And she says, okay, fine, you can, you can live here. They begin to cohabitate, and it's not a big house. It's kind of run down. It's a little bit shabby. It's obviously very old. There's kind of a top floor, which is only accessible from the outside, which they don't really use, and a cellar, and not much of a garden. And the inside is covered in cockroaches, so not great. Perhaps some of the most disturbing cockroach lines I've ever read in my life. Yeah, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to read them because I think everyone listening should be as uncomfortable as I was reading that. Please. <laughs> they begin to cohabitate, and he learns more about this town of peat, <laughs> peat produce. <laughs> Even though it's in the 1950s, electricity here is so new that um, although, well, what the newspapers are writing about is the bringing of Ilyich's, which I assume is a reference to Vladimir Ilyich Lenin, um, Ilyich's little lamps, but the peasants talked wide-eyed about the Tsar fire. So that's how backwater this is. 30 years after the revolution, people are still talking about the Tsar fire in reference to <laughs> electricity. <laughs> we learn more about what it's like to live in Matriona's house. She has a, a three-legged cat who can sometimes catch mice, but for the most part doesn't. Not helped by the fact that there are apparently five layers of very thick wallpaper on the wall, <laughs> which create a lot of areas that mice can hide in from the cat. Solzhenitsyn really doing a good job at making me uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Um... The main room of the house is really just one room, and there's a curtain that separates the living area from the kitchen. And there are a ton of cockroaches that mostly come out at night. And here is what our unnamed narrator writes about these cockroaches. They did not creep into the best room, but the kitchen at night swarmed with them. And if I went in late in the evening for a drink of water and switched on the light, the whole floor, the big bench, and even the wall would be one rustling brown mass. Mm-mm-mm. Mm-hmm-hmm. Leave, first of all. <laughs> oh, here's some more uncomfortable things. <laughs> at night, when Matriona was already asleep and I was working at my table, the occasional rapid scamper of mice behind the wallpaper would be drowned in the sustained and ceaseless rustling of cockroaches behind the screen, like the sound of the sea in the distance. What if my but I got used to it. Oh, yeah. oh sorry, I was going to say, when I was taking a class that this was assigned for, one of the Russian people in my cohort thought it would be reassuring to mention that well russian cockroaches are smaller than they are here in america so and i was like what <laughs> that doesn't make it more reassuring at all oh no it's not the size of the cockroaches that's um so disturbing <laughs> it's how many uh, yeah yeah uh but the narrator says that he does get used to them because there's nothing evil in it Nothing dishonest. Rustling was life to them. That's one way to take it. Mm -hmm. um, this whole place, it does. It's saving grace is that there are two posters on the wall. One for some product of the town and another for a book, which creates a nice atmosphere. We learn more about Matriona, how she gets up very early in the morning. Basically, everything she owns is old. Uh, she's not been working in a long time, although she worked for the Kohols for a while. She 
has been deemed too old, so every morning she gets up, she milks the goat, she makes breakfast for them all, for her, for the the uh, unnamed narrator, and for the goat, and then goes out to do some gardening. Invariably, at some point in the day, someone comes to her and asks her for, for help, and that always derails her from her chores for the day. Whatever, no matter what she has to do, she always gets derailed by someone asking her for help. And while this is happening, the narrator comes to really become fond of Matriona. Uh, even though she's not a very good cook, and the stove that she cooks on always burns their food, he, he gets... He, he really begins to become fond of this very kind older woman. And he buys a camera, actually, and begins to just taking a lot of photos of the house because he kind of, despite all of its problems, cough, cough, sheaths of cockroaches, um, <laughs> he's really fond of, of this place. And he's always trying to take a good picture of Matriona. And he notes that she always assumes a strange or exaggeratedly severe expression. And only once did he minge a snap of her looking through the window into the street and smiling at something. All he really wants is a picture of her smiling, which is sweet. But at this point, we, we delve more into how everyone basically kind of takes advantage of Matriona. The local Kokols, when they need help, they need her, and they basically press her into service. When her neighbor comes for help, when her family comes for help, she didn't say no to anyone. She, quote, couldn't say no. She gave up what she should be doing next and went to help her neighbor. And when she came back, she would say without a trace of energy and talk about all the wonderful things they have that she doesn't have. She really has nothing. And we learn more about her family. She's got three sisters who <laughs> never really see her. She's got an adopted daughter who lives in a, in a nearby town. And she basically lives in poverty because even though she's all this family, she's on her own. Her husband disappeared during the war, World War II. Uh, her daughter, of course, although she gives her some money, doesn't really give her a whole bunch. The Kokos doesn't pay her a pension because she was never a formal worker there. So she's just surviving on, on very little. And even though she helps everyone, no one really gives her anything. That is until she's able to finally get a pension. And in addition to the pension which she's receiving, which is already more money than she's had in a long time, she's also getting money from the school for putting up the, the narrator and money from the narrator. So she's in She's doing better. She's doing better than she has been doing in a long time. And she gets a, a nice new coat and some new shoes. And everyone is jealous and they're mad at her for doing better. <laughs> the girl's at, she's flushed with cash. Yeah, she's flushed with money. She's got the finest coat, <laughs> the finest padded lining under her cloth and her coat. Her sisters finally come to see her. And the narrator is like, it's kind of weird how I've never seen any of your family before. And wonders <laughs> if they were afraid that Matriona might ask them for help. So they avoided her. <laughs> Oof. Now, there is one ominous event when she goes to get water blessed. And when she brings her pot, she puts it down, goes to service, and when she comes back, her pot is gone, and no one knows where it went. So she's a bit superstitious at this point. The narrator mentions that although she wasn't exactly a believer, and if anything, she was more of a heathen, she had strong superstitious beliefs, which of a superficially Christian veneer, but are at their core essentially pagan. So she doesn't know any formal orthodoxy, but she has a lot of superstitious beliefs and a lot of, you know, minor traditions. Over time, they, they really get, begin to, to know each other better. And one day, a man comes over to talk to our narrator about his son. And the narrator's like, your son's a terrible student. And the guy's like, hmm, okay, well, I beat him every week. I'll, I'll beat him harder now. Thank <laughs> you, sir. And walks out. Nailed it. Not what you're hoping for from a parent-teacher conference, but, you know, it's, it's rural russia <laughs> and matriona is obviously a little distant and she says you know i almost married him actually and she reveals that the man was her brother-in-law 
And initially, uh, this man, Fadei, was courting her. However, he goes to fight in the quote-unquote German War, World War I, and he disappears for many, many years. Well, three. Still a long time. In that time, Yathim, who is Fadei's younger brother, comes and says, Matriona, marry me. And after some years, Matriona finally says, yes, I'll marry you. And it wasn't that much later after their marriage when Fadei comes back from being a prisoner. And he finds his sort of fiancé married to his brother. And he says to them, if it wasn't my own brother, I, I'd take my axe to the both of you. Which is not the healthiest response to that. But, <laughs> Oops. you know, it's like 1917. So I guess I'm not expecting the greatest. Um, <clears throat> so she feels super bad about that. And then Fede is so obsessed with marrying Matriona that he goes to another town to find another woman married named Matriona and marries her. Which, again, um, huh. I, I don't know how to react to that. That's just... <laughs> Probably even wilder than the cockroaches, honestly. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, and Matriona is actually quite close to the other Matriona. It doesn't matter which one you've imagined in which order there. It's the same thing. The Matriona that Fede marries always comes over to Matriona to complain to her about how Fede is always beating her and he's stingy and all these things. And it turns out that Matriona really wasn't missing anything to, by not marrying Fede because Yefim... You know, for all of his faults, never ever beat Matriona, which is a low bar, but I guess he didn't do that. So there's that. <laughs> Matriona and Yefim have six children. All of them die pretty much immediately. And the whole village decides there's a curse on Matriona, which is only reinforced by the Great Patriotic War when uh, Yefim is recruited into the army and he goes and he disappears. Now everyone is like, well, Matriona is definitely cursed, so they avoid her even harder, unless they need her help, in which case they um, come immediately to Matriona. Matriona is, is not getting any younger, and it becomes apparent to the people around her that she's getting a bit sick. And like sharks circling in water, smelling blood, her family immediately begins to come and ask her for her shit. <laughs> Fede, who... Fede actually... He helped his father build the house that Matriona lives in. She moved in there when she married Yefim. Yefim dies. She still lives there. He wants the, the second floor of the house, which Matriona doesn't use, because Matriona's foster daughter, Kira, who is actually Fedi's daughter, but, you know, after you lose six kids, she's like, I, I want a kid. So she goes and asks Fedi and Matriona for one of their daughters, and they just give her one, uh, who becomes sort of Matriona's daughter, who now lives in another town, needs to put down some timber to build a house to get the rights to the land. But there is no timber, so Fatty is like, hey, Matriona, you're going to die anyway, so can we have your timber? <laughs> Just really, you know, beating around the bush. <laughs> yeah, I know. And she's not really down with this idea, but Fatty and all his sons are really insistent, so she kind of gives in, and they begin to get the timber from her second floor. They dis disassemble her house, and they, one night, although they should have two tractors taking all this lumber, they decide, let's do it in one trip. We can, we can do it. The real reason is because the tra tractor driver has stolen this tractor for the night and doesn't want to have to steal it two nights in a row, basically, for both trips. And when they leave with the wood, Matriona goes with them, and the narrator waits and waits and waits. And when he wakes up the next morning, there are men in uniform out knocking on the door and, hey, like, hey, the people last night here, were they drinking? And he's like, he knows they were, but it's illegal to have that alcohol, so he says no. And they are not very good soldiers or detectives or whatever, so they don't find... They don't look behind the curtain and find an incredible scene of definite drunkenness behind it. And our narrator finds out that as as they were trying to cross some train tracks, the timber got stuck. And when they were trying to get it removed, a train, which was running backwards with its lights off, which was uh, muffled by the sound noise of the tractor, ran them all over and kills them all. 
What happens next is we find we, we follow through to the, the funeral for Matriona and for the son of Fede who was killed. And we just have just the most, oh, I don't know if you've ever seen Knives Out, but the most oh, yeah. Yeah. just, yeah, surface deep level mm-hmm. of, of um, <laughs> mourning you ever have had for anyone from people who obviously just want the dead woman stuff. Everyone is just using her her funeral basically as sort of a political session to condemn each other. And it's, it is interesting in that. And it, finally, when everyone's gone and she's buried, the unnamed narrator is sitting there. And even the one woman who he believed truly loved, Matriona, comes over and asks him for stuff for her daughter. Who, of course, Matriona always said that she'd give my daughter this when she died, right? And the narrator is sitting there thinking, I don't think she ever said that, but... You know, this was the only woman who really, who Matriona really loved, who really treated her right. So she must have said that. She wouldn't lie to me and ends up giving her the stuff. In the days following, everyone begins to just harsh on Matriona and make fun of her for not investing and never asking for money for all the help she gave people. And the narrator ends the story on these lines. And this is, this is slightly abridged because it's, it's a whole page. It was only then, after these disapproving comments from her sister-in-law, that a true likeness of Matriona formed itself before my eyes, and I understood her as I never had when I lived side by side with her. She made no efforts to get things round her. She didn't struggle and strain to buy things and then care for them more than life itself. She didn't go all out after fine clothes. Clothes that beautify what is ugly and evil. She was misunderstood and abandoned even by her husband. She had lost six children, but not her sociable ways. She was a stranger to her sisters and sisters-in-law, a ridiculous creature who stupidly worked for others without pay. She didn't accumulate property against the day she died. A dirty white goat, a gammy-legged cat, some rubber plants. We all lived side by side with her and never understood that she was that righteous one without whom, as the proverb says, no village can stand, nor any city, nor our whole land. Matriona's house. Matriona's house. So... The house. <laughs> <laughs> so this is read in a lot of ways. Matt, you have the definitive answer to what the story is about. Oh, I really don't. I have anyway. <laughs> I have several ways. Okay. All right. Oh, I'm, I'm curious. Let's talk about them. The most general way from what I understand, which I don't think is the right way, but it's definitely a way and it's pretty pervasive, uh, at least when it's taught at maybe like undergrad levels is, so you have Matriona. She's this old Russian woman she represents this old Russia that exists pre-revolution. And she comes and she's killed by the modern train. And it's a symbol, if you think about it, for old Russia just being dominated by Soviet Russia. Now, I think that you could read it that way. There are elements of that. But I do think that that's a little bit simplistic. If you're only going to take one part of the story, that's the most extreme. But it actually... As far as Solzhenitsyn goes, for me, this is one of the things that I actually did enjoy reading. Um, I think it's, I don't know, I just think it's actually a pretty well-constructed story here. And it actually, I just sent this to to Cameron as we were recording. Maybe he'll put it in the show notes. This is based on a a true story. After Solzhenitsyn was released from from prison, he he went to like a rural, not a rural town and took a teaching position. And he lived with a woman named Matriona. And this was like, when photographs existed and there are actually like photos of her in her house which are super interesting to think about and actually well to see actually (laughs) this is actually a pretty sick house i gotta say looking at these photos it is it's way better than my current house (laughs) (laughs) um yeah that's huge my goodness so 
you mentioned that you don't have a, a programmatic reading, but that you you had a lot of thoughts and a, well, a lot of impressions, may we say? Yeah. Well, how were you impressed? <laughs> I mean, I mean, I just like the story as a. Maybe it's because we've been reading so much Tolstoy recently, but I kind of read it as a morality tale. Uh, I mean, he's. I would say he's implicitly condemning the the people around Matriona for taking advantage of her, but it's not really implicit. He's doing it pretty explicitly. <laughs> Um, and the ending yeah. is is pretty explicit on how he views the rest of them versus her. I don't know. When I was reading it, it seemed, at least to me, like a straightforward morality tale of of a woman who is really almost Tolstoyan. I don't know. I don't know how to say it in a way that's really intelligent, but she's just someone who has maintains her dignity about her, and it's not something that it's external. She doesn't need nice clothes like her husband wanted. Uh, she doesn't need nice things. She doesn't need to invest. She just needs herself and to kind of be happy with helping people. Mm-hmm. And as as the narrator says, she's kind of the sort of person that makes our society run. But of course, everyone around her is just relentlessly trying to take advantage of her. And even her her, her very funeral is just a sort of politics as everyone who goes to lament over her corpse has a moment to say things. And they're all basically just having an indirect dialogue with each other about how it's really your fault that this happened. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. How do you walk away? Yeah, no, I do think that a big part of it is the morality of it. But I do think the politics of it are important because of, well, first of all, who wrote it and kind of when it was written in place, being placed 1953 after Stalin's death and kind of thinking about Solzhenitsyn's own experiences as well, being someone who was sent to a forced labor camp. Uh, I think it's hard. It's hard to divorce that. I don't think he's calling for a return to pre-Soviet Russia. I think he kind of... I don't know. I don't think he really advocates for that. I don't think that's what Matriona represents, at least not to me. Mm. I think he's definitely not kind to the peasants. No. Yeah. I think that what most of the people around her represent are more of a flaw of humanity as a whole, as compared to being tied to any system. I think he's kind of saying actually more or less that it doesn't matter what economics or politics you put on top of it. People are still bad and will take advantage of one another for the most part and we should all try to strive to be like matriona regardless of politics and really if you really think about it matriona is like the most i guess socialist of anyone in the story on the core fundamental value that she helps others uh if that's what your i guess if that's what your baseline for building a socialist society would be so it's more yeah it's more morality than politics but i think people are going to slap politics and whatnot onto it just because of you know the history of the writer right yeah yeah i I did want to ask you about the politics because i when i walked away from it i really didn't there was some interesting investigations of like rural politics and the way that that kind of expresses itself it's definitely definitely interesting but i imagine you've done some reading on the the politics angle that people take into it i'm kind of just curious if you happen to have a good I don't know, like a way of explaining it. What do people read into it politically? I mean, I guess there's the kind of baseline <laughs> rural Russia being smashed literally in this case by modern things like trains. But yeah, I, I mean, really, that's like that's why I think it's kind of surface level, because that's to my understanding, that's one of the <laughs> that's like one of the, the main things uh, you mentioned the part about the the Lenin lights or whatever they call it uh, in the translation. The people in the rural towns still be being fascinated by the czar fires and whatnot Um, i think i think part of it is that trains as a whole for russia are kind of a big symbol electrification being you know another one that was big at this time but trains is a sort of 
connecting force for an empire and for a country. You know, they existed obviously before before the Soviet Union, but I think the I don't know, I actually don't have I don't have data on trains, but I would imagine <laughs> that most of these rural towns were connected to the train tracks during the Soviet Union. Uh, and so I, I would imagine that for that reason, this idea of train tracks and like domination of the physical world are things that people kind of read into in this. And rightfully so, but it's also like that's not really exactly what's happening. Mm-hmm. There's also like it's I think it's more nuanced because right before the part that you read at the end, the, the narrator is memorializing Matriona talking about uh, saying in my translation, it says every other cottage had its pig, yet she had none. What could be easier than to fatten up a greedy pig whose sole object in life was food? And saying that Matriona never wanted a pig. Well, she's just, there's something fundamentally different about her. And I think that's what Solzhenitsyn is, is directing you to. Yeah, you know, politics are almost always important. But here it's a more fundamental. Like you said, it really is almost <laughs> almost a, a Tolstoyan morality kind of plea. Well, I think that the, the reason why when I was reading it, I really came came away from it as kind of a, Tolstoy and morality plays because there is a sort of condemnation of how these people act, especially in the funeral scene when the sisters are mm-hmm. putting forth one lament and the, the family of Fedei is putting forth another lament. There are people who don't participate in that. So there's an older woman at the funeral who the narrator mentions is way older than everyone else. And she is she thinks that the way that everyone's acting is kind of indecent especially after they finish up their their pol- politics game and begin to drink and tell stories, and immediately Matreon is forgotten at the wake. The narrator writes, The stern and silent old woman, who was more ancient than all the ancients, was staying the night and sat, up, sat high up on the stove. This is late in the evening. She looked down in mute disapproval on the indecently animated youngsters of 50 and 60. <laughs> and even the, the foster daughter, Kira, Fede's whole family is up there kind of blaming Metruina for her own death, essentially, at her funeral, which is not the classiest move, but Kira alone is is the only one who expresses true grief in just pure form, and that when she goes up to cry at her foster mother's corpse, she doesn't have anything to say, nothing to, to no points to make. She just stands there, and she cries, and at the wake, she leaves everyone else to be alone. Also, her husband was there, and he survived, and he immediately turns himself in, and it's noted that he probably wasn't even going to be charged with anything he's probably just going to be sent to the madhouse mm-hmm. based on the way he was acting so she's lost her foster mother and potentially her husband in one blow so she's just having genuine grief as opposed to everyone else who's using this immediately to their advantage so i think it's interesting that solzhenitsyn is including specific and targeted contrasts to the way that everyone else is acting which is kind of what led me into that morality tale and it's not just a, a you know a distant narrator being like this is what the peasantry is like but saying that this is what this specific generation of people is like, and mm-hmm. there are other people within this own this very group who is condemning them in the way they act. Yeah, there's the line too about the the other Matriona towards the well. We're not reading from the same edition, but <clears throat> the narrator mentions that she broke the rules of the the funeral service by wailing in unaffected sincerity over the coffin. Just kind of you know the idea of. <laughs> sincerity being against the rules right it you know it's nothing novel but it's going to reinforce you know what you're talking about yeah and if fade who's <laughs> it was his ideas that set this very plan into motion mm-hmm. uh, the narrator mentions that when he goes to give his respects he just stands there stroking his beard and the narrator writes he was probably already thinking about how he's going to get that wood back from the authorities yeah uh, which yeah. he does and it's mentioned that he gets it back on the day she was buried so and the day that she 
the woman he once tried to marry and got killed, perhaps faithfully after the fact that he basically threatened to kill her many, many years ago and now indirectly has, um, spends the morning of her burial trying to get some wood back to make sure he gets land in another town. No, I just reread it. He doesn't get the wood back. He goes to the town after getting the wood back and builds the house the day she's buried. I mean, hey. I mean, hey. (laughs) I mean, yeah. I I was just going to comment on the structure a little bit because I Mm. I found it, you know, interesting that the story starts uh, talking about, it starts six months after the actual death had occurred, talking about the train passing and how they have to slow down uh, when they go through the tracks. And the narrator says, only the drivers knew why they had to slow down, and I knew too. And it just sets this in such an ominous mood as you go through it. Um, Mm -hmm. Because you know, like, I feel like you kind of know there's going to be an accident on the tracks, but you don't know quite how or Mm. why or how stupid of a reason it's going to be for. Right. Um, I I don't have a lot of significant things to say about the structure. Mm. I just, you know, I always find it interesting when things are told in a nonlinear fashion. That is interesting. I, I That was something that really struck out to me at the beginning, but honestly, by the end, it, I didn't even remember it. But now that you pointed out, that's a really good point. It, yeah, I, I had the same exact thing. Like, I remember when I was discussing this for the first time, people were like, yeah, when I, when I, you know, I was just waiting for something to happen the whole way through. And I was like, were you? Because I totally forgot about it by the time <laughs> we got to the end, because I don't know. I was focused on how Fadei is a bad person at that point. I don't know what I to tell you. I was <laughs> still freaked out by the cockroaches. Mm. Right. I wonder, now that I go back and read the, the cockroaches thing, I almost wonder if that's something, that's a commentary on the people in the story. I mean... Or maybe a contrast that, as, as gross as the contrasts are, you know, and as, as un, un understandable the rustling that they do is, that's just, it's not dishonest or evil, it's just who they are. It's compared to the, to people in the, the people in the story who do things not people like, or focusing on clothes, or living for other things, <laughs> mm-hmm. which is not necessarily, at least in this story's telling, natural to humanity. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's reading too deeply into that line. No, I mean, cockroaches are, I mean, it was <laughs> jarring for a reason. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. This isn't Tolstoy. When he, when someone spends an entire page in something, it might be important. Right, right. Tolstoy is just kind of doing his own thing there. Yeah, instead of just thinking about <laughs> low necklines. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think you get... Uh, in the story, you get a little bit of, of Soviet commentary. Mm. Well, a lot of Soviet commentary. But <laughs> yeah. it's like, it's very muted. And you wouldn't, it's actually almost kind of <laughs> applicable to today when the narrator is describing how Metriona is trying to get her, they call it the social security office. I don't think it was called that. The, <laughs> he's trying to get like, the pension. <laughs> right. Uh, and they say that they chased her from office to office for two whole months, sometimes for a missing period, sometimes because of a misplaced comma, which is a famous aspect of Soviet and just Russian more generally bureaucracy and how inefficient it is. But also, is it really that much different than going to the DMV, for example? <laughs> I don't think so. I've actually always had very good experiences at the DMV. I feel like I'm some sort of white elephant in this regard. You are, but that's, that's good <laughs> for you. I'm happy for you. <laughs> but yeah, your point stands. So I think there are like kind of yeah, okay, so here's my thing with it. Is, okay. I think there are little jabs like that that point you towards the Soviet Union and like this uh, critique of Soviet society in some ways. But I'm not sure that that's the dominating feature of the story. I, re- I really do think that it's, it's broader than the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. And that's why it has 
still captured my attention while reading it. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I completely agree with you in that regard because yeah, the, the the Soviet Union is almost incidental in this story. It just happens to be where it is. If you if this story was reset in to be in 1860, you would not have to change that many details to make it work. Right. The train, maybe something else, maybe a, a tractor or something, but <laughs> <laughs> two tractor pileup. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the narrator is trying to get away from the from the train tracks for a reason. So some elements wouldn't work, but this is almost a playset of time, which to your point is is it's of its time period, but it's not about its time period, I think. Yeah, I mean, you again, it's just because of the dominant way that I believe it's read. That's what people will try to make it about. But I think, again, it's just it's a little bit reductive. Matriona is an, an interesting character, as you mentioned, her. Her superstitions, she has that kind of dual belief that we talked about in the Zuleika episode, the mm. kind of half Christian, half pagan, if you will, or the, you know, Christian with some pagan elements. Really pagan with some Christian terminology, frankly. Yeah, maybe that's maybe a, a, a pagan that's aesthetically Christian. I don't know what you want to call it. You know, things like that. And that archetype exists outside of the Soviet context. And that's why I think that. You know, just reading it as such would be kind of a, a misreading or not a, a complete reading of it. Yeah. As I'm reading this, I tie this to many other elements I've in like the literature we've been reading so far. Obviously, we've talked about Tolstoy, but even in the way he talks about her, she almost kind of reminds me of, um, I, I, I honestly can't remember her name, but Bazarov's mother in Fathers yeah. and Children. She kind of had that kind of vibe when, when Turgenev talks about her as the sort of Russian woman who's dying out an old mm-hmm. spiritual kind of pagan woman. I almost read that in Matriona in the way that she very much is. She's simple in the way she lives her life and that she's not not trying to gain anything over anyone. She's just trying to live and, and, and not even enjoy herself. Just She's just trying to exist, really. Mm-hmm. She's just trying to vibe. Yeah, I think that's why people also read it as this old Russian archetype sort of thing. Mm. But I, I don't think her virtues are tied to her time period. Yeah. Like her temporality. I don't think that's exactly what it is. Because mm-hmm. I, I, I don't think Solzhenitsyn is saying you have to have this to have that. You know, I don't think he's saying you have to have lived in <laughs> ancient Russia <laughs> to have these these values. I just think it's it's something that you can strive towards in any time period. Right. I mean, that's where he seems to almost diverge from a lot of these other writers, where he's not, mm-hmm. like Tolstoy's, like, if you want to be morally good, you got to live on a peasant commune. Whereas Solzhenitsyn, it didn't read as, you've got to be like Matriona. It was just... This is an example of morality that I think is is exemplary, mm-hmm. and it happens to exist in this context, was how it kind of seemed to me. Yeah, yeah, more of a despite-all-odds sort of situation. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. So? So, yeah, when am I going to read your paper on the subject, C- correcting the academic record on this? <laughs> I don't know if it's the <laughs> academic record, or if it's just the way that I had kind of been exposed to it, but soon. Sorry, the undergrad record. The undergrad <laughs> record will be corrected soon. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I, I await with bated breath. <laughs> All right. Well, before we totally wrap up, Cameron, on a scale from one to Yeltsin, how drunk are you? Well, uh, considering that this is a tall boy of 7% kombucha, <laughs> in addition to our last episode, in addition to the many cups of coffee I've had today, if you listen to the last episode, uh, I'm getting up to a six or seven. All right. How about you? How are you? Where are you at? I am at a seven and would be higher if it wasn't tempered by the fact that I have to pee so badly. <laughs> I forgot to pee in between episodes and, you know. We broke for just that exact purpose. What did you do at that time? I grabbed another beer. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I can't, I can't fault you that. That's the important thing there. You know, hate the game, not the player. 
<laughs> Hate the podcast, not the podcaster. That's right. <laughs> well, you heard it here first, folks. Fear and condemn our podcast. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> okay, well, <clears throat> what are we, I would say reading, but really, what are we getting back to next week, Matt? Oh, we're getting back to it. And by it, I mean part four, Anna Karenina, Summer of Anna Karenina, be there, read it, live it, love it. Tolstoy. Yeah. Farming. <laughs> farming. <laughs> Our very own farming simulator. <laughs> if you aren't playing Farming Simulator, Tolstoy would condemn you. Farming Simulator <laughs> or Farmville, either works. Farm in real life, Phil. Well, before we let you go, we want to extend a sincere thank you to all of our current patrons. We've got Jeff, Janice, Anne, Emily, Jesse, Madeline, Alex, Daniel, Irini, Paige, Darren, Larkin, Lou, Gary, Daniel, Jack, Alex, and Roland. Podcasting isn't free, and grad school doesn't pay very well. So if you're interested in joining with our current patrons to keep the show running, take a look at our Patreon at patreon.com slash tipsytolstoy. The music used in this episode was Soviet March by Toasted Tomatoes. You can find more of their stuff on toastedtomatoes.bandcamp.com and also on YouTube under the same username. If you're looking for other places to find us, you can also follow us on Instagram at Tipsy Tolstoy Podcast or join our email list on our website, tipsytolstoy.com. You'll hear from us again soon. <laughs>